want to welcome you all to the first installment of our, our roundtable Stufac uh, discussion series for the year. I guess to us it's known as Stufac, but for any people who are outside the dorm, we will be referring to it as the roundtable faculty discussion series. Um, and I just want to welcome our first guest of the year, uh, Dr. Joe Nodo, who is faculty in residence here in Roundtable. That's why it's a great honor for us to have him tonight. Um, just as a little background on Joe, not to embarrass you, um, Joe, um, in terms of his educational background, um, he went to Lehigh University where he got his BS in civil engineering, um, later went on to MIT where he got his master's in civil engineering as well, and ultimately uh, finished off at Cal Berkeley he got his PhD in civil and environmental engineering. Um, and just in terms of his primary research interests, um, Joe is involved in theoretical and applied mechanics, micromechanics, composite materials, and probabilistic methods. Um, and I think today in this, this kind of very informal space, we want to learn about your research, how you got to Duke, and then ultimately what got you involved in the Delta Smart House project and what kind of is, is going on with this project and how students are engaging in this project with you. Okay. So if we could just welcome Joe. there's two main components here is one is I do have an association with the Duke Smart House it's a project that began and this is a little bit of a review for some of you um, started about three years ago with student uh, interest in working on smaller scale projects which would eventually get implemented into a house um, to incorporate smart technology uh, another uh, to give an, uh, an idea of another project one which I didn't just describe was uh, hot water recovery. There, there's uh, an interest in sustainability with the house. And so there were some mechanical engineering students who worked on recovering heat from shower water. So you bring in city water at like 60, 65 degrees, 
and you heat it up to you know 110, 120, and you use it in the shower. And this was a unit that would then, after you've used the water in the shower, would extract as much heat from that water as possible and use that to heat new cold water that was coming up into the shower. So it was uh, an energy savings device. And they actually received, uh, did very well in um, their heat recovery in terms of their efficiency. And so th that's an idea of a type of project that a student group uh, would work on for the smart house. And over the years, the number of students who are kind of volunteering their time to work on projects for the smart house has increased. And now it's around 100 students that are involved in uh, working of, on projects that are of interest to themselves for various reasons and with the hope of one day of getting um, implemented uh, in the Smart House. The Smart House actually just began construction this week. So, and I'll, I'll show you in a minute where it is. But there's another aspect, uh, a more kind of academic aspect, because the student volunteers, they don't get any credit for what they're, they're doing it for their own personal benefit. For an academic side, there's an interest within Pratt to get more engineers from various departments working together on different types of collaborative projects. And so the initial idea behind the Duke Smart House course was to offer a course where students would work in teams on a project that would require, ideally, a biomedical engineer, an electrical engineer, a mechanical engineer, and a civil engineer. And that the only way they could really possibly have a hope of solving the problem was to have that type of diverse background. And um, that course has been offered uh, for the last two years and will be offered a third time um, this coming spring, you know, next semester. It's a learning, it's a, it's a work in progress, so we've kind of uh, changed our, our, our approach to it. The first year, we just let students come up with their own projects. You know, here's a biomedical, you, 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 know, you biomedical, electrical, civil, mechanical, you four are a group, decide on a project you want to do. And deciding on a project is very difficult, and, one, and it took students a third to a half of the semester just to come up with a project. So Last year when we offered it again, we didn't give them that option. We gave them a list of potential projects. And one of those projects was um, part of uh, a grant that we got from EPA the, and the P3 competition, P3 standing for People, Planet, and, the Prosper and Prosperity. And so we got $10,000 to work on a project, uh, build it, and then bring it up to the mall in DC and compete against other schools. And so we had a team t-shirt, which is this, but the back of it here, uh, it, I can use it to um, explain what the project was. And those of you back there, I apologize, you're not gonna be able to see. But what the course dealt with was this integrated system. And so we've got the smart house here. On the roof, there's solar panels. And usually solar panels on, on a house, and as these are in this house, they're fixed. Solar panels are more efficient if they're always perpendicular to the rays of sun coming, uh, the rays coming from the sun. So this was a uh, mechanical device where the solar panels could track and they would follow the path of the sun so that it would always be perpendicular to the sun. So gain efficiency that way. The 
panels themselves are of a new technology. They're higher efficiency, but the difficulty, the 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 challenge with them is uh, they don't tolerate high temperatures as much as your typical silicon-based uh, um, solar panels now or, or in the past. So in order to keep the temperature down on the solar panels, we had to cool them. So it was a matter of getting a plumbing system to pump water behind the panels to cool them down. Okay, so now we've got a system where we're pumping cold water through the panels to cool the panels down so they don't break. And so now we're getting hot water off of the panels. And so much like the project that I just mentioned where mechanical engineering students were taking, extracting the hot water from the shower, well, that's what we're doing here. We're taking hot water, which is the orange here coming down the house, uh, taking the hot water, putting that into a tank, and extracting the heat from that water into the intake from uh, the street, heating up the city water. Okay, so we're extracting the heat off of the solar panels, heating up the water coming in from the city, and then that water then gets used uh, in a shower. And then the water from the shower is collected, and likewise the heat is extracted back out from that. But since that water is now kind of quote unquote dirty water or gray water, we can filter it though and then use it for the toilet. Okay, in a cistern rather than, uh, so try to get as multiple use as possible out of the water. Um, so then that reclaimed water uses goes to the toilet and then from the toilet it goes to the uh, city wastewater treatment plant. And so that's kind of the integrated system of cooling sewer panels, this heat transfer in this tank, uh, which was rather complicated, and then uh, the gray water system using the reclaimed water and extracting the heat from the shower to supply water for the toilet. And so this was an actual physical system. Obviously, it wasn't the whole house, but we had a physical, uh, the students, I should say, had a physical toilet and stuff. And it was all plumbed, and, and uh, the solar tracker tracked the sun and um, generated electricity. And uh, uh, we had a little shower there as well. So, um, But this is kind of a schematic of what that system is. And this, the students spent the whole semester designing and building this. And so those are kind of the two aspects of uh, how students get involved in the smart house. Um, feel free to interrupt, but maybe just to give you a little background on what the smart house actually is. Kind of concept, as I mentioned, started about three years ago. Um, there have been some um, funding and design uh, compatibilities to, ma to make, so usually the ideas have been a little more um, extensive than what there's been funding for. But now there seems to be a match between the design and the funding, so um, ground was just broken either at the end of last week or this week. And where the house is located is over by the Freeman Center. So these are construction drawings. I've never seen them before. But let's see. Yeah, so here's Farber Street. And so the Freeman Center is right about here. This is the parking for the Freeman Center. Um, I guess Duke, uh, Duke University Road is one road right here. And so this is the site for the smart house. And the dash line here gives the outline of how the house is oriented. And there may actually be. 
better. So yeah, here's the, the Freeman Center, parking for the Freeman Center. And uh, these are existing conditions on the site. And then this is post uh, development with the orientation of the house and parking. Um, house is gonna cost about $2 million. It uh, is gonna house 10 students in five double rooms. It's two stories. There's, there's still, I'm not sure how that's going to work. I'm sure that there's always probably going to remain at least like 100 students working individually on projects and only 10 will be able to live in the house. So how it's, how they choose which student projects kind of necessitate students living within the house to develop them, I guess is, is a process <laughs> that still needs to be developed. But if I can find the, oh, that's the, So there's not much going on in the basement. There's just a, a big mechanical room. Um, the first floor, um, there's a bedroom in the back left corner. Um, there are two labs. There's a dirty lab and what a clean lab. Clean lab would be like all of your electronic soldering, electrical engineering stuff you want to do. If you need to fabricate stuff, um, that would be in the dirty lab. So these would be the main spaces where projects would be constructed or components of them. There's a commons room with a kitchen in the center of the building, and then there's a media lab in the back right. And then the second floor is, um, well, there's kind of a cathedral ceiling here, but two bedrooms on either side. On the roof, there's a green roof, so there's grass on probably about two-thirds of the roof. And there are also um, skylights um, that open up into this open space and let light in down to the first floor. And there are also hot water uh, panels on the roof. On the front facade of the building, on the railing for the second floor, there are um, uh, the solar panels. Um, like we've used in this project here. Uh, what's the uh, rationale behind having grass on the roof? Um, insulation is one. Um, second, to, to cut down on uh, runoff from the building. Um, so the grass that's up there is going to need water to live. Um, so that will partly take care of that. Uh, whatever water does run off the roof is collected into cisterns and is then used for like irrigation on uh, the property and stuff. But generally it's, it's for insulative purposes that you'd have a green roof. When will this be finished? Uh, so they're breaking ground either last week or this week. They're on a really tight schedule, shooting for July 1 would move in of August 1, and so theoretically, students will be living in the smart house for the next academic year. Um, but that's a tight schedule. 
chances are uh, something will happen to the schedule and will get pushed back. And so probably a more realistic um, date was probably going to be like January 1 for move-ins. So students would be living there for the spring semester, but conceivably for the fall. With the water management, is there, I'm, I'm just thinking about how, how, how the water is going to be managed. It seems like, would they have to have a specific order in which they use, you know, the shower, the restroom, to, to make sure that, no, because the, the storage tank for the hot water looks like it, it would overflow if you don't use the shower enough. You know, because you're constantly pumping through the solar uh, panels. Yeah, I mean, this is very much a schematic. But no, there would, the, the plumbing would be such that, uh, yeah, you're not going to be using water that you shouldn't be. Okay. So, but, but, you know, the water that goes into your toilet does not need to be potable water. And so, you know, if, if you were building a city from scratch nowadays, you know, you'd probably have two water sources into your house. One would be potable water and one wouldn't be. And the one, because it costs quite a bit of money to, to treat water for drinking water. And the fact that we nowadays, basically, you have to treat everything that comes into the house, whether you're using that water to do your laundry, which doesn't have to be drinking water, you know, using your toilets, dishwasher, you know, that does not have to be drinking water quality water. So, um, but primarily probably the stuff that they collect in the cisterns off the roof are going to be used for irrigation for plants on the property. Is there a plan for other sustainability in terms of vegetation? Um, I believe that it is part of the, uh, the landscape architecture. So I mean, sustainability is a large component of the house. I don't know if this has changed or not, but I don't know if you've heard of LEED certification. Yeah. Leaders in environmental something design. I forget what LEED stands for. But um, it, the certification that you can get, and Duke has made a commitment that all new buildings on campus will have some type of LEED certification. And you can get it at the bronze, silver, I don't know if they have gold, but there's something like at the gold level, and then there's platinum. And what my recollect recollection is, is that there's no building currently in North Carolina that's platinum. Okay. Silver is, um, I think bronze or silver. Okay, CMOS is silver, Bostock is... Give me silver, yeah. So it's very hard to get, particularly platinum, so at one point I did hear that the plan for the smart house was for it to be the first platinum LEED certified building in North Carolina. Um, but I don't know if that has um, been maybe toned down to gold or something because of budgetary issues or stuff. But so platinum still could be the goal for uh, this building, but I'm not sure. What, what would it take to get platinum? I mean, it sounds like this is a house that's being designed to, you know, that its whole purpose is to be, you know, conservative and environmentally friendly. Right. And, I mean, if it can't make platinum, I mean, what, what does it take to get there, you know? It's a, it's a point system, and there's a, a bunch of categories, and 
depending upon what you do, like the you know, the green roof and uh, collecting water in cisterns and using that to uh, irrigate your landscape, you get credits for those types of things. And uh, there's lots of potential credits, and if and it depends on the 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 number of credits that you get as to which category that you fall within. And so um, sometimes it depends, you know, how much are you willing to go through to get the additional credits that you need to get to the next level. And they're making it a push. I mean, LEED is, is to, to get, like, platinum certification. So say the smart house doesn't get platinum certification. Is it upgradable if they get more money in the future? Um, I think so because as part of renovation projects are also um, available to get LEED certification. So probably the renovation of Perkins probably has some type of LEED certification as well. And you get credits for reusing stuff. So if 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 they decided and they wouldn't because it's Perkins is surrounded in Duke Stone, but they could have decided, oh, it's just gonna be easier just to tear Perkins down. And rebuild new. Well, you lose credits for lead certification for that because you're creating a lot more demolition waste by tearing something down rather than reusing it. And so Perkins got credits for leaving existing walls in their location rather than just gutting entire floors and then repartitioning everything. So, um, uh, so I suspect if you did some type of renovation to this, you could do additional things and then yeah, increase the certification. So when you say that there were budgetary constraints, did you have particular things which would have been good for these certifications which uh, <coughs> get cut if they were too expensive? example which is kind of maybe in some ways a bad example because they actually ended up doing it but in CMOS mm -hmm. there the loading there's a loading dock in the back of CMOS and underneath that loading dock area is a large underground cistern and to put in a large underground cistern like that is very expensive but Pratt went ahead and installed that cistern because of the credits that CMOS then got to go toward um, certification. So that's how your budget can be affected um, by having to pay to do certain things in order to get certain credits. Now I think Pratt got helped out because I think they uh, uh, they tied in with the group that was doing Bostock and so the water that Pratt collects in its cistern is used to irrigate plants around Bostock and things like that. So there were some financial sharing, I think, going on in this as well. I just had a question about the, the clean and dirty labs on mm -hmm. the first floor. <coughs> so does that, does that mean that there's going to be this constant working on projects within the house? Or what, what, what is the purpose of the two labs in the house? Uh, the purpose of the two labs are to give students physical space to be able to construct aspects of their projects and then they would probably be installed elsewhere in the house. Okay. Um, in this house, there's no ceiling like we have here in this room. It's non-existent. You're gonna see the joists 
and so that's so they can put plumbing and wiring and easily get it from you know one floor to the next or one room to the next without having to break holes in the ceiling so it's probably going to have a relatively um, industrial kind of I mean not it's not cinder block walls or anything like that but um, a little more industrial look like that that kind of architecture so when the house is actually livable do you will there just be engineering students living in the house working yeah they'll be uh, yeah there'll be 10 Pratt students okay. so no training not not that I'm aware of. Okay. Yeah, I mean, we could we could contribute philosophical guidance. <laughs> like I said, I mean, I don't know how. I don't think it's been decided how it's going to be decided. Who who are the ten people that live in this? And certainly, I mean, there's a much greater push now. I I would say within Duke. To have more collaboration between Trinity and Pratt and the other professional schools. So, if there was some type of project that could uh, be applicable to the Smart House and that would require students from both Pratt and Trinity, then I think that there would certainly be an interest and motivation behind, you know, having that type of um, living arrangement. Um, once the house, um, like, is finished with construction and start living in it are, is it going to be completely student run or is there going to be some kind of supervision or you know like how do they well I don't know I mean, I in terms of it being like a residence hall yeah well I mean in terms of like even just doing the experiments like is it going to be formal like faculty advising for the project or is it just like the students on their own kind of thing just out of curiosity <laughs> my best guess is that it, it would continue the way it currently exists mm -hmm. now and these students who work in groups voluntarily, they often will and are encouraged to solicit faculty advice. And if they run into a problem, you know, find out what faculty probably have the background that they need to answer the question, and then go approach them and, and ask for some like consulting help. Um, so hopefully, you know, that doesn't change. Uh, what is new this past year is that there is a faculty advisor for the Smart House. So there is that type of um, faculty involvement from an advisor point of view. But there is a director, and there's always been a director for the Smart House. And we're in our second, we have our second director now. And both of these are directors who were students the previous year. So Tom Rose is the current director. He's in the start of his second year as the director, but he graduated a year and a half ago. And then Mark Younger, before him, had just graduated, and his first job was to be the director for the Smart House. So that kind of day-to-day, full-time job has been a student who has just graduated. Would you be able to talk a little more about the other appliances or elements within the house that may be coming from different engineering departments, not necessarily your own? Um, because of my involvement on the course side, um, that's more of my involvement. And so the exact projects that the, that the 100 students are working on voluntarily on their own, I don't have nearly as much 
depth of knowledge as to actual projects that they are working on. Mm -hmm. What projects are you going to be putting forward for this course in spring? If you have any ideas, let us know. <laughs> but we haven't we haven't decided on any projects yet. You brought some items with you. Are they part of the house? No, I, I was um, kind of asked, you know, maybe a little bit smart house, and then if there were interests in research, then that's what the little gadgets are for. Um. So I work in composite materials and um, mechanics, and so I'm interested in how s stress flows through a material. And so this is um, a photoelasticity experiment. It is, um, I'll pass it around, and when you see it yourself, you'll be able to, to see better what's going on. But it's, uh, it's just a, a plastic beam, and it has a hole drilled in it. And then through these thumb screws, I'm using this one here to support it and keep it in space, uh, in place. But there's uh, polarized filters on here, so all the light's going through um, in a particular direction in terms of waves. And then uh, with the other screws, I can apply a force to this, and as I do that, it creates deformations, and it causes a fringe pattern, which you may or may not be able to, to make out where you are. And uh, so it's those fringes that you see is what I'm interested in calculating or being able to predict, which is what's in the structure. And I do this in a composite material, but what you're seeing here is not a composite material. It's all one material, uh, all of this clear um, lucite plastic. And my research is to combine two or more materials together to kind of exploit their beneficial properties, recognizing that you have these stresses that are going to end up flowing through the material, and you don't want these stresses to exceed the strength of the material. And one of the, I guess the main application of this initially was um, a plane that was proposed <coughs> probably over a decade ago, the high-speed civil transport which uh, would fly, it was a commercial, kind of like the Concorde, but like the next evolution up. And the problem with those planes is that they're going so fast that the skin temperature increases so much that, and what happens with material properties is as a material, oh, you want to pass this around if you want to play with it. This, this knob here, don't turn it, otherwise the beam will fall out. But that's not a problem if it happens. Um, so materials like aluminum, like most aircraft are made out of, as the temperature increases, its stiffness or its ability to resist these stresses goes down. Okay, and so when you're talking about high speed high speed civil transport that's going like Mach two, Mach two and a half, the temperatures get sufficiently high that if you just made that high speed civil transport out of aluminum that those material properties would diminish so much that you would have to have an incredibly thick um, exterior to the plane in order that the resulting strength would still be sufficient. So 
from a temperature point of view, using all aluminum is not a good idea because the material properties of function of temperature are not good. But aluminum is nice because it's very ductile. You can bend it and it doesn't break. Okay? So there's kind of an advantage and a disadvantage to the aluminum. If you could then introduce another material, a ceramic, okay, like silicon carbide, uh, that, ha that material has very good thermal properties. So it can take those high temperatures and not have a reduction in strength. Okay? But silicon carbide is very brittle, so it's kind of like chalk. You, know, you start to bend it and it doesn't look like it's doing anything and all of a sudden it just breaks in two. And uh, so what the idea with composites is, and in particular with respect to high speed civil transport, is how can you combine the beneficial properties of the aluminum with the beneficial properties of the silicon carbide while trying to mitigate the temperature effects of the aluminum and the brittleness of the silicon carbide. Now, nature hasn't done it with, um, with respect to high-speed civil transport, but bamboo is a good example of a composite material. In particular, it was called a functionally graded material. So if you look at the cross-section of this, um, in some ways it's kind of like wood. It has strands that will grow in the vertical direction of the plant. And if you look at the cross-section through the thickness of it, you'll see that there are more of those fibers on the outside of the bamboo than on the inside. And so this is what's called a functionally graded material because of that distribution is not uniform. Those fibers aren't uniformly spaced throughout the thickness. They're concentrated on the outside surface and there's much fewer and uh, yeah, there's just much fewer on the inside surface. Okay. And so nature does it, if you kind of think of like evolution, does it in an optimal way. And so Specifically, I deal with functionally graded materials, which are combining two or more materials to create a composite, but to design it in such a way that that system performs optimally. And you know, nature's also done it with um, bones. So this is um, the head of someone's femur, and uh, nature didn't decide to just make bone a solid block of material. There's a lot of voids in it. And what you can do, particularly um, well in the two more translucent areas, you'll be able to see that there are fibers of bone that run in two directions, and they'll, and they'll tend to be perpendicular to one another. And they're oriented in such a way that they most optimally resist the, the types of stresses that you see with the fringes there. So, um, so bone's an example of a, of a functionally graded material. this. So how you combine those two materials, one within the other, like in the bamboo, the fibers within the bulk material, um, you know, that's how nature chose to do it. And as engineers, we need to decide, well, how do we embed the silicon carbide that's good with temperature resistance? How do we embed that in terms of, in terms of shape and orientation and that spatial distribution that you see within the bamboo? How do we do that for the silicon carbide within the um, within the aluminum, and uh, and so that gets into microstructure, how one is embedded within the other, and this is a cool example of what the effect of microstructure can have on the response of a material, and so um, no one has any computers, or I'll keep that away from the hard drive on your um, iPod. 
So this is just two syringes that have been joined together and there's a fluid in the middle of it. So I can just, I can squeeze the fluid from one syringe to the other. And what this fluid is, is just water or maybe this is actually a mineral oil. So it lasts a little bit longer. And they're just very fine iron particles that are embedded in it. And that's why it looks kind of gray. Okay, so it's a fluid. But now I can drastically change the material properties of this by just introducing a magnetic field. And so this is a magnet, though it is a powerful one. Okay, and we just apply it there. And now what it's done is it's transformed that fluid to essentially a solid. And so now you can't move the fluid from one cylinder to the other. And I'll pass this around and try it, but don't try and this, this stuff is not good for you, so we don't want it to break. But I can push on it, and if you re remove the, the magnetic field, it'll, you can move the fluid and then you know, just add, and it stops. The magnet will, yes. Yeah. So. And I have a colleague who uses um, this type of material in, in buildings. And so imagine that this is like a bracing element within a building. And during an earthquake, the building is going to respond. And we want to limit what those deformations are. And so if by using a computer and sensing how the building is responding to the earthquake and using a numerical model of uh, the properties of that building and being able to compare our prediction with how the building is responding, we can play games with the model to say, well, what happens if this element here is non-existent, so there's no magnetic field, and that as far as the building's concerned, this bracing element isn't there, and then say, oh, well, now we can add it with a control system by just adding a little magnetic field to it, now changing it into a bracing member that can take load. Okay, and so you can then significantly change the dynamics of the building by having a few strategically placed elements in it like this where you can essentially remove them and add them at will and be able to then limit the deflections at the top of a building or deaccelerations at the top. And so this is just an example of how a microstructure can affect the response to a kind of an extreme way. Just a quick question about the, um, the composite you were talking about for the plane earlier. Is there some reason why that would be more cost? I mean, I'm sure that the stuff you'd see sort of in military planes, uh, which is built to withstand those high temperatures, would be much more expensive. Mm -hmm. Is there some reason the composite would be less expensive or more desirable than the kind of stuff that they use today? Uh, a lot of the military aircraft do use composites as well. Um, a study was done in that in order to make the high-speed civil transport economically feasible, if you use just aluminum, you would have to cut its weight in half. And really the only effective way of doing that is using composites and trying to exp really capitalize on their positive benefits and then mitigating their less favorable ones. And that wouldn't be that expensive to, to make the composites? Uh, it would be very expensive. Okay, but you were looking for one that would not necessarily be. Right. Okay. Right. But yeah, no, composites are generally much are more expensive than just bulk materials. Okay. What does the military use? Do you know? Do you happen to know? 
Uh, I'd say they use probably mostly carbon fiber composites. Okay. And those are, those are really expensive to... Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I, I know how expensive individual jets are. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can buy carbon fiber bicycles, and they're about three three thousand to five thousand dollars um, so there's that there's a lot of concern within the bicycle industry because Boeing is it Boeing or is it Airbus I think it's Airbus just developed a new plane that is using extensive use of carbon fiber and so now they have secured a contract with one of the major carbon fiber suppliers and on Airbus is going to be purchasing so much of it to supply what they need for their airplanes that a lot of the smaller industries like bicycles and skis and tennis rackets and things like that are really concerned about being able to get enough. getting enough for themselves. I'd actually, um, and this is just something sort of I've heard about a few times in passing, when we talk about carbon fiber, are you talking, uh, I think there was something else, it, it, sorry. Um, there was something like a carbon fiber where you were sort of seeing, um, I'm just, I'm picturing the molecular structure and it was kind oh, of like- Carbon the, nanotubes? Yeah, yeah. Uh, very different. Uh, very sugars. different carbon fiber is, that's used in like bicycles and stuff is, is it looks like a fabric you'd buy the fabrics or usually a, bit, a little bit of a coarser weave to it um, but it kind of looks like that carbon nanotubes yeah you mentioned molecular structure those are I mean nanometers in diameter but they are extremely stiff and extremely strong and the issue is is how can you get them to be long enough and to get them in the orientation that you want given their size and there's a lot of work at trying to build composites using um, these nanotubes because their properties are just even so much better than the carbon fiber that um, that are in bicycles and in um, you know Airbus's airplanes and stuff yeah. so that's the source of a, uh, of a lot of research right now considerably more difficult to produce yes yes particularly in quantity yeah how how would you go about producing something like that you know Oh really? They're okay. Primarily um, double walled nanotubes. The single wall just go out of the question, right? Okay. Um, Microelectronic machines or something like that. They actually have little machines in there that are really tiny that actually spin the fibers together. <laughs> yeah. So, so so the same technology that's used for the printed circuit or for the, the your CPU chips, yeah. it can use that same photolithography effect to build little uh, uh, like cantilever beams that are used in actually sensors on your airbags in your car. So little microelectromechanical uh, cantilever and um, once, and so it's good for measuring acceleration yeah. or deceleration during an accident. So, and they can, you, they can build little motors now and little pumps. Any research that you're seeing in the photography field that you're familiar with? 
that you may be interested in, in learning more about or, or something you see that's kind of cutting edge that might be emerging in the near future on the market? Um, something that's pretty cutting edge that involves composites at least or like human composites is your cornea and LASIK procedures. I don't know if you've heard of that or has anyone had LASIK done? You know what? No. <laughs> well, no, but that, but that's that's just it. Is the fact that someone can have LASIK and still require glasses afterwards? Hmm. And particularly if you looked in ads and you look closely, you know they don't say that you're going to have 20/20 vision. They'll say you'll have at least like 20/40 vision, or there's a 95% chance that you know you'll have 20/40 vision or something. There's there's always a caveat to say that you, because they can't guarantee that you're going to have 20/20 vision, and the main reason for that is, uh, or what's theorized is, um, so the stress those um, fringes <coughs> that you saw, your cornea is a stressed composite. It's basically like a gel that then has fibers in it that run from one end <laughs> of your eye to the other across the cornea, and it creates a patchwork. But the spacing of these fibers is very, very regular because obviously light has to pass through it. So it can't be a random distribution. It's very uh, structured. And so your cornea now is this, is this stressed body because you've got an internal pressure within your eyes. So there's stresses within your cornea, which is a composite body with these fibers running through it. And then what LASIK does, or what the theory is, is they can map the top and back surface of your cornea and they can do ray tracing to then explain why you're not seeing 2020 and they'll make predictions it's like well if we can reshape the top surface of your cornea so it looks like this then light will pass through it correctly and you'll get correct vision but their models have always been assuming that the cornea is not stressed that there's no stress within it and so if I want it to look like this then I just have to go in and make it cut and make a cut or use a laser to ablate it to to that surface and, and the problem is is that your cornea is is stressed so there's stress within it and if you take a stressed body and I was trying to figure out how to um, use some rubber bands and jello and stuff and like make a little model for you <laughs> so that you have this stressed um, like jello and then if you make an incision in that because of the stress that causes a redistribution of those stresses and you'll what you think is just going to be a straight slit and the two sides are going to remain together they actually can pucker out and if you're not accounting for that type of stress redistribution upon remodeling the surface then your your finished surface of your cornea is not going to be what you think it is and that's the main reason why I theorized that you know you can't guarantee that LASIK is going to give you perfect vision after uh, the procedure, and so there's more work that needs to be do, done in understanding and being able to predict <coughs> how, what are the stresses within the cornea, and then what additional deformations does it undergo when you remove a part of it. How did the LASIK technology gain access to the popular market? Have they always known that it was a stressed composite? Uh, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> no. 
No, <laughs> but a lot of it is is you know your eyesight is here, and this is 2020, and even with that uncertainty, if they can get you to here, sometimes that amount for someone is a significant benefit. I mean, they can get up out of bed and not kill themselves. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Okay. And maybe it's at a point where they just need glasses to to read and they don't need it for driving or something like that. So um, so even though there are those uncertainties, the procedure itself, given those limitations, still can make a sizable increase in um, benefit to the patient. But you gotta be careful, there's different procedures and some of them are called like radial keratotomy. And there's a reason I'm a civil engineer and not a biomedical engineer, and it's because things like this gross me out. Um, but one thing, what they used to do before LASIK was to make radial cuts in your cornea down to about 90% of the thickness, because that relieved some stresses and caused your cornea to change shape, to change your eyesight. And so you can just imagine what that's doing to the structure of your cornea. I mentioned you've got fibers that run from around the perimeter. So. What's the long-term implication of something like that, though? You can You're very through so many of those fibers. Yeah, you can very easily tear a cornea. And then you'll need a corneal transplant. I mean, do they repair themselves? No, at no, all? no, no, they, no, they, no, not at all. So there are people going around who have had this treatment 10, yeah. 15 years, well, 10, I don't know. Right. How long yeah. ago, but yeah. Yeah. And they just, wow. Yeah. So now what, now what they do with LASIK is they actually kind of go in with a little like guillotine and they, they basically create a flap in your cornea. But they don't cut it all the way off. So, so um, they go through most of the way and then they can peel that back. Okay. okay. And then they ablate on that surface and then put the flap back. Okay. And then it's just the internal suction um, that's keeping it tied down. So apparently doctors two years later can come back and peel the flap back and do a corrective procedure and then lay it back down. And that's why you can't buy a, a fighter jet uh, or, bring, or go scuba diving ever again to get LASIK. Oh, is that true? Yeah, you've heard that. Okay. Because that's high. I mean, my um, mom had it. Yeah. Oh, sure, okay. Like a, I mean, you can't go scuba diving. And I'd read that you couldn't buy a fighter jet which wasn't really a primary concern of my yeah. mind. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I mean, yeah, like if, if you get a deep pressure, yeah, I don't know what exactly happens with the suction, but it's not good. Yeah. What's the F word? Oh, I, I everyone likes silly putty, I guess. So, <laughs> but so I use it in class for. Um, so I was kind of illustrating what stress was with this, and um, and I was illustrating with the well that is that's called a magnetorheological fluid, and so how microstructure can affect response. And silly putty is a good example how how some materials can respond differently depending upon how quickly you load them, or so like you know how and some yeah, so we stressed this up pretty good, so. Um, whether I load this really slowly and turn it slowly or whether I kind of give it an impulse load. So with Silly Putty, you can 
you can pull it apart and it's very plastic and stuff like that. Um, but then what's neat is, what I think is neat, is if you load this much more quickly, it behaves much more like an elastic ball than just um, flowing like it did. So if you hit against the table, it'll bounce like a ball. And so this is called a viscoelastic material. How it responds to stress is a function of how rapidly it's loaded. So you can make your own with cornstarch and water. If you've ever, if you've ever done that. someone came up with a material that it had negative gravity so it was trying to go up all the time oh no 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 that was sorry it was that when you when you bounced it um, it would gain energy so he would drop it and it would bounce high, yeah higher and higher and eventually go all over the place and somehow they were Able. Did he make a flying car with it or yes. something? Yeah. yeah he made a flying car players. with it. I'm not. I'm it sounds like that violates yeah, the third law of thermodynamics. work with just theoretical models okay. um, because with with trying to design functionally graded materials the fabrication process is very elaborate and very expensive and with the types of stuff that I'm looking at techniques don't exist to be able to make the material the way I can design it okay. <laughs> but it because it be, be, it, but see, no one is going to invest the money and the effort to try and make a material a certain way unless you can show them in advance through models, well, this is the b potential benefit that you'll have if you can do this. So these are all feasible, re relatively feasible, if someone's willing to make the investment. Right. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, Pratt would be interested in, in selling it. There is a, a major donor for the Smart House that has not been announced yet. They were going to be announced at the um, competition up in D.C., but marketing is an interesting thing. This company could, could
couldn't decide in time how they want to market their relationship with the Duke Smart House. They didn't, weren't sure how to brand that connection. And I guess from a marketing, and anyone who here is in marketing know this, but once you've branded something in a particular way, and if you then decide, oh, that wasn't the best way to do it, we should have done it this way, it's too late. So they weren't willing to make the commitment that they've decided how they want to brand the connection with the Duke Smart House. And so they ended up not uh, announcing their affiliation up in DC. But given that this is the Duke Smart House or home and the, the color of the t-shirt here, you might be able to guess who it might be. <laughs> What's that? Did you say McDonald's? I said McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. so. Turns around to change. You should do about the same as of Montreal's uh, <laughs> dress. Would you say name the dress? So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, another thing. There's lots of sustainable technology. Or, you know, There's one of the goals for it, yeah. Well, um, I know that you know there's a federal initiative trying to put men on the moon and men on Mars. Do you think do you foresee any of this this that's being developed here going into like NASA funded projects? Um, is it that new or cutting edge? I'm not sure if it's going to be applicable to what's going on at the moon. The main thing that's going on within the moon is you're going to have a closed environment with limited resources and you're going to have to be able to recycle within your building water. You'll drink it, you'll then expire it in the toilet and then you have to recycle that and be able to reuse it. And it's that type of process that you're going to have to be able to perfect. And so it goes back to an experiment with the biosphere out in Arizona about what, 20 years ago maybe, 15 years ago? A big experiment to see if they could make a, what they thought would be a totally enclosed environment where they are growing crops and things like that. So it didn't work. Yeah, I was about to say Well, why didn't it work though? Why didn't the actual project work, you know? I don't know specifically, but I do know that they did have to make uh, additions of say oxygen and, and things like that so it wasn't completely enclosed uh, during that time and I'm not I don't know what the reason was doesn't it I mean did they have the objective to be closed perpetually or just for a limited amount of time well I think you think it was like six months or a year oh, okay because I was gonna say like, I mean, at least what they thought was a self-sustaining system right seems to violate, I don't remember which law, but... No. Well, no, I mean energy. I mean, they could yeah. probably get energy from the outside, but in terms oh, okay, of water, oxygen, food, that kind of stuff. Because okay. um, you're not going to be able to, you know, run a supply mission to the Mars very easily. So, But energy you could get through, you know, solar panels from the sun and that kind of stuff. So, so energy would be something that you could have. But yeah, no, definitely, if, if, if it was closed thermally and, and, and energy-wise, it would be uh, quite a challenge. <laughs>
property um, in terms of the student projects and yes. will the students be involved and will they have a stake in mm -hmm. this benefiting from this? Yeah, there's actually a patent application, um, well, particularly for the uh, solar panels and that cooling system. Um, students that worked on this, uh, which goes beyond just this past semester. Uh, part of this was also a project that started about a year and a half ago. So you've got students over like a two-year period of time <coughs> that have worked on this project and faculty have, and uh, one student started kind of wrapping this up together this past summer, and so he spearheaded a uh, patent application. And so um, everyone that had some type of input into this project is listed as a contributor and has a certain percentage of royalties assigned to them. I think mine's like 0.7%. All right, so that was a good list. <laughs> 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 is it a single patent application, or would you have one for the mechanical thing on the roof and one for the water system? Uh, those other systems haven't developed to the point where mm -hmm. they've started to explore a patent application, but particularly for the cooling of the panel, which is in collaboration with SBC Solar, the company. I think the president is a Duke grad. Um, they're working closely with the Duke Smart House. And so um, I think between the owner of SBC Solar and what Smart House students have done for this project, they're collaboratively putting this uh, patent proposal together. What are the solar panels made out of? Um, the panels themselves are made out of extruded plastics, so they're not they're not silicon based. I was reading that those have much lower efficiencies, though. If their temperature increases, their efficiencies uh -huh. will increase if you can lower their temperature. Oh, okay. And that's the idea behind the cooling right. of it to try and keep the panels at the optimal temperature for efficiency. Yeah, and if they cool. They're cool. I mean, what's the efficiency compared to silicon? Um, I think it's about a twenty to twenty-five percent gain with the cooled panels over oh. the silicon. Oh wow! That's including the the electricity for the pumping. Uh no. This is looking at just the just efficiency the of the panel itself. If you start looking at the system as a whole. Um, we did calculations and you still come out ahead. Okay, even with even with energy that you need to supply the pump and okay. things like that. Okay. And presumably the plastic is a lot cheaper than the silicon. Yes. Yes. And uh, not nearly as heavy as well. Okay. And you can manufacture panels in pretty much any shape. They don't have to be kind of standard. What's the what's the optimum shape for a panel? Uh, probably rectangular. Okay. <laughs> so so. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess what I meant is the like standard sizes. If like we needed a non-standard size <coughs> for this project, and the the guy the president from SBC Solar was, you know, able to make it in a couple of days the exact size that we needed. So there's that type of flexibility. But if you wanted a custom job, if you were building some weird contemporary art building, you right. would have spiral plastic. I mean, that is no spiral, <laughs> but weird, weird shapes. Right. <laughs> yeah.
towards things like sustainability and stuff like that. But um, are they use are they investigating any like other kinds of like uses for the house? I guess because it's a living lab thing, or is it or is everything in the labs basically working towards the house? I guess I mean, are there any other projects that aren't necessarily um, environmental in nature or? Oh yeah, some are like completely entertainment. Like there's a media center in the, on the first floor in the back room, and um, it's the second floor, so below bedroom. Right. Um, so there's students that have worked on an active noise reduction system to uh, limit outside noise from getting into the media room, so that okay. all you're hearing is the media system. And so you've got ventilation ducts that are going to go from you know, the boiler that's in the basement and it's gonna go through metal ducts into the media center. And so what they looked at was um, being able to apply forces and stresses to the sides of the HVC, HVAC ducts to counteract any pressure waves that get transmitted down through it from noises that are made in other parts of the building. I'm guessing this is a show going on. <laughs> um, students have looked at, you know, again, also from the sound point of view, uh, building walls that have cross sections that aren't going to transfer your mother's voice from one room to the <laughs> other. <laughs> so, so, yeah, they're not all environmentally oriented. Um, there are some that are for people with disabilities. So mm -hmm. some people were working on uh, an ID system so that when people approach the front door it, that the system would be able to recognize who they were and inform people within the house of who's at the front door. Um, for people with disabilities, uh, be able to tell them if they're about to walk into something. Like someone may have, you know, that, that chair is usually there, but maybe someone moved it over there. And if someone is used to this commons room and they're blind and they're always used to that chair being there, this system would be able to alert them that, oh, wait a minute, you know, you're about to walk into this chair. So there's kind of, you know, technologies like that as well. So some are purely entertainment, some are security, um, some are for people with disabilities. Uh, a lot of this also often gets into issues of um, uh, privacy. I mean, do you want to be the person walking up to the front door and then that gets announced to everyone in the building? <laughs> so, systems that would be able to track your motion through the house. And so that in particular just really starts getting into privacy issues. Yeah. There's been uh, work done on smart toilet, uh, which is, so basically everyone has to go to the bathroom. And so uh, building a smart toilet that, will be able, that would be able to extract urine sample in particular, and then be able to test that sample for certain things like diabetes and stuff, or be able to uh, track trends and then, you know, it could then give you a warning, <laughs> hey, you know, 
you should think about uh, <laughs> going to the doctor because you have an elevated such and such level. <laughs> Or from like a nutritional standpoint. So, but two years ago, the first time that course was offered, that's what one group of students worked on was this smart toilet. So you should tell the campus cultural mission of Sandra. She's tied to the age of people. And underage drinking ends from one day to the next. That well, that no, came up the underage <laughs> drinking because because you you one of the tests that you could run with the urine would be alcohol content. No one's been drinking either because a, a, anybody who has a urine alcohol content over a certain thing violates university policy for even twenty-five-year-olds. Faculty after uh, e-socials crack down on them. You know what, that's a good idea. We need to shut this project down. <laughs> <laughs> so pri privacy is a, is a big component of it. So what happens if uh, one year's 10 students get in there and, and they just, they hate what the last people have done with the place <laughs> and decide to, to rewire like an entire room. Does that does that override? I mean, once a once a project is in there, is it in there for good or? I doubt it. Yeah. Um, I think a lot will depend upon the person who's who's overseeing day to day activities of the house over an extended period of time. So say the director, like Tom Rose, and um, so one so one year a group of uh, students work on a particular project, install it. Then for the next year, I think it's going to be up to Tom to decide, is there, is it worthwhile to keep this project installed? Is it possible that another group this, the next year or the year after that is going to make improvements to it? Mm -hmm. Or has, a, has subsequently another group developed a system which kind of replaces what the previous group did, in which case you could then take that down and install the new one? Or there probably be a time where both systems would be installed at the same time while the new group is installing and working out their bugs and then say, okay, well this one is better than the other one, so we'll get rid of the other one. So it's definitely a framework for things to get installed and deinstalled and upgraded and so very it's much so a living cool. kind of structure yeah. and complements. I mean this is this is very piecemeal. Do you think there's ever gonna be a project that works sort of towards getting this all integrated, um, seeing if there are any things that could work together, any individual projects that could work together to improve overall efficiency? Year four. Uh, I mean, ideally, I mean, I mean, so this is gonna be something that's gonna be going on for years. And eventually, once certain projects get enough maturity to them, there could be another group that says, oh, well, it seems obvious that these two should, or ideally, these two projects should be linked. And so maybe that's what that, team works on is linking those two and then eventually you'll end up with parts of things that will definitely have market value and then they'll be developed and through a sponsor they'll probably be distributed it just it seems like every time I've gone into a place like this where they you know design it for environmental feasibility or something you'll Someone will point something out and then be like, and this also works in these other, you know, four ways for these other four, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, you've been showing some of that, you know, the solar panel hooked up to the toilet and the heat.
Right. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about, but just, yeah, no, you answered it. Okay. <laughs> Talking about patterns and responses, what do you guys think the patterns of patterns? Because I was shocked oh. to find out that the university's administrative fees on grants is like 54%. Right. So, so I, I was wondering, I mean, I, I have no doubt that the provost gets a piece of the pie. Substandard. I think the, the university owns the patents, but you have certain rights. Um, but yes, yeah, so the university would get a substantial part to it. Chances are, with something like this, or you know, any student that kind of comes up with their own idea and they want to patent it, because you're affiliated with Duke, Duke has the first right to file the patent application. But to do that and go through that process is like $10,000. So chances are what students could do, and apparently it was a student a couple of years ago, a football player designed a new chin strap for a helmet that was really effective. And so that student you know, had to go through Duke first, said, here, here's this idea that I have. Will you patent it? And the university said, well, you know, we don't want to spend $10,000 for it, so we write, we'll write you this letter relinquishing our rights back to you and you can file the patent application and you know spend the ten thousand dollars you can do it cheaper there's a nice book you can buy and you can do it for I think just a couple of hundred dollars but it kind of takes a little bit of time um, and um, and so then it, it would be possible to have your own patent for something but if the university sees that it potentially has a financial could potentially gain fi uh, financially by it, then they're not going to give it over quite so easily. But do you still get a slice though? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I forget. I forget how much it is though. But is what, the majority going to the university? I think so. Yeah. Well, what I mean, what happens if it doesn't have anything to do with the university? What, it's something that you. Is like if 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 it was worked on while you were at that university, then. But I mean, like I can understand that if you're using the university facilities, right? But like, if if you weren't, you just happen to be oh, true, a student, and then you just and yeah, if, if you time. didn't use any Duke facilities to generate your idea and work through it, then yeah, Duke wouldn't have any claim to it. No, no, I'm I'm strictly from a patent lawyer's perspective. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking about how. If I can outsmart, <laughs> I'm gonna come back and be the smart house lawyer in, in ten. That's years. for overhead. <laughs> That's yeah. So, but still. Yeah. Well, it just seems like a lot. Yeah. But that's you know salaries for secretaries, housekeeping, <laughs> maintenance and upkeep on buildings. Yeah. It just seems like a lot. Personnel that you know process orders and do paperwork and all that. I gotta grab stuff, all of that. Sometimes you know, private university or you know, nonprofits. I mean, Duke's a nonprofit. So they have to disclose some information. Yeah. Thanks but I mean, I think to think that it's truly a nonprofit is kind of. They're just they're reinvesting in their. Mm -hmm. Their own thing. 
doesn't like it because then Duke doesn't have to pay taxes because they're or pay some taxes because they're not profit. Welcome.